Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. I can't wait for you to meet my next guest and new best friend, Priya Parker. I like to refer to her as the Martha Stewart of people. You'll find out what I mean by this later. Priya is a conflict resolution mediator whose work has taken her all over the world. She's the founder of Thrive Labs, a boutique advisory firm that creates motivation and purpose for the world's most pressing issues. Priya is also the author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, an incredible book that I know all of us could benefit from. When I met with Priya, we got to talk about creating meaning and purpose in moments of gathering, whether it be a business meeting, a dinner party, or your own wedding. We talked about her mandate and why you should never be a chill host and how I'm guilty of it. I learned so much from her. I think a huge part of gatherings that are transformative have a certain amount of heat. And heat can be conflict, but heat can be taboo. Heat can just simply be relevance. Why are we coming together? What do we care about? And how do we focus the light on that? Okay, let's get to my chat with Priya Parker. So thanks for coming. When I saw the premise of your book, I was like, that's interesting. Is it a book? And then I started reading it, and I was blown away both by my own chillness (laughs) as a host and why that's a problem, Mm. and also the fact that now I go into meetings or gatherings, and I'm so floored by the lack of purpose. So how You can't see it the same way ever again. (laughs) Totally. I'm like, this is so lazy, and I participate in that culture, too. We all do. Yeah. I roll in, I open my laptop, I'm vaguely present, (laughs) and then an hour has gone by. All right, so how take us through it. How did you become a Martha Stewart of people (laughs) and not invitations? I come to this work through the field of conflict resolution, and particularly group conflict resolution. So The Art of Gathering is really a book about group dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I'm biracial. I I grew up in these kind of two simultaneous worlds. My parents for 13 years lived all over the world and then eventually moved back to the U.S. My mother's Indian. My father's white American. And within a year of moving to Virginia, they separated. Within two years, they divorced. And within three years, they both remarried other people who were kind of radically different from themselves, from their, their original marriage. And every two weeks, I would go back and forth between these two households, and I write about this a bit in the book. But one household, just to kind of paint the extremes, one, my mother's household was a kind of Indian, British, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, liberal, 
Democrat, like landmark forum you know, new agey, incense-filled, <laughs> the whole thing, household. And then I would, you know, drive 1.4 miles to my father and stepmother's home, and it's a white, evangelical, Christian, conservative, Republican, twice-a-week church-going, you know, climate-skeptic family. Wild. <laughs> I, I joke, my name is Priya Parker, and you can guess which side is which. And I really came into this work in part because to figure out where I belong and, and, and in part because I have an inheritance that has been one that can't assume that there's a way. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's how you have dinner or whether it's how you pray or don't pray or whether it's how you spend your free time, I had two families that were so polar opposite in many ways but neither one of them assumed, particularly on my father's side, that there was kind of another way to be. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to college, I became very interested in race relations. I went to the University of Virginia. And my path into this work really was through race relations in college. And long story short, I learned about a process called sustained dialogue, and I became trained in it. It's a group, it's a group dialogue process. So really, I'm in the field of group dialogue or multi-stakeholder dialogue, but conflict resolution kind of for short because people seem to know what that is or think they know what that is. And that's how I came into the, the work. And I, over and over again, would go to gatherings, conferences, weddings, funerals, dinner parties. And because I was trained as a facilitator, you're kind of fo- told to focus on the interaction between people. I could see at dinner parties over and over again that the wisdom inherited by, you know, icons like Martha Stewart is sort of if you get the things right and almost the assumption that you can't really control people, but you can control things. Totally. And as a conflict resolution facilitator, I knew that that just wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write a book that was accessible, that looks at all types of different examples, but that gives a lens not just to how to shape you know, the exquisite food or the flowers or, or any of the other elements of the atmosphere. They're important, but at some level, they're high-level hygiene. Yeah. And begin to put a lens on how do you actually shape the psychological, emotional, cognitive experience of a group. Yeah. And how do you move things forward, which seemed to be sort of one of the theses of the book. Like, how do you create meaning in these moments? How are you forging connections? Yes. It's a creation. It's The hypothesis is, or the challenge is, how do you, for decades, we've been told that you broadly create meaning through things, mm-hmm. right? So for a spring dinner, like what, what is the recipe? How do you remind people of spring? And that's not untrue, but we stop at the shaping of things and we don't say, how do you, if it's the turning of a season, what should the conversation be? How do you not make the meeting so implicit that it's just only baked into the ramps, but actually <laughs> say, you know, Spring is a time for cleaning and shedding and new. What in your life are you trying to let go of that's hard for you? Right. I love that idea. I think it's hard in execution because as someone who is, you classify it as being a chill host, the idea being that you sort of set it up and then step back, Mm -hmm. which I understand now is highly irresponsible. (laughs) But the idea, and you talk about this is when you, like, let's talk about dinner parties, for example, when you create a conceit, or this moment of conversation around spring cleaning and getting rid of that which doesn't serve, how do you spark that without feeling like a douche? Totally. Amazing question. (laughs) (laughs) So first, 
I think it's much harder to not feel like a dou- douche if you're <laughs> like springing it on people, right? So if you've done nothing to prime people, if you have, if you've said nothing in the invitation, if you haven't thought about people who would be actually open to a conversation like that, to then go in and be like, "Hey guys, you can't you know, see your listeners can't see me right now, but I'm kind of my elbows are out and I'm." you know, I don't know, shaking with what I guess looks like a <laughs> corny person. Be like, hey, guys, let's have a, you know, intentional conversation tonight. That is really hard to do if you haven't primed people for it in advance. And one of the things that I, the way I think about a gathering is that every gathering is a social contract. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you're, you're offering an invitation, which is like, hey, let's have a picnic or, hey, let's, th- there's a back to school night or, hey, let's go to a play and have dinner afterwards and there needs to be an actual yes. And the yes is powerful when people know what they're getting in for. Right. So, you know, and, and this is as true for like draft day, you know, fantasy football leagues where where like leagues you know, virtually over email will argue over the rules of draft day for 364 days a year. And by the time you actually get to that day, and many of these gatherings are all over the country, often with men. So it's not necessarily like... People will fight over rules and think about a social contract if they understand what the purpose of it is. Right. And in a dinner party, it's much easier to prime people so that they know what they're saying yes to when they're getting an invitation than to in the moment when it's kind of random and you're just vague in your invitation, say, come to this dinner party. It's a lot harder to get people on board than if you've called your dinner party something and people know what they're saying yes to. So, for example, like, again, I'm making this up here, but like spring solstice or spring cleaning or more humor like do you Marie Kondo like you know like whatever whatever the relevant cultural zeitgeist is for your group of friends and then in the invitation to use humor and to use sarcasm and to use wit and to use transgression and all of the things that are like cutting across our like cringiness at earnestness yeah but that if it relates to a purpose that you actually have like what is purpose purpose is need Right. Mm-hmm. Do I have a need in my life right now that by bringing people together in a specific way they might address? Mm-hmm. And so it's not a theme to have it be hokey. But if, for example, it's spring transition and you feel like having a more intentional conversation about what does it actually mean to let go of things you're really attached to, then people will respond to that because that's, that is true for you. But if you're trying to do a theme dinner around the spring... Right. That's much harder for people to show up to because it kind of feels put on. Right. So start from the need, not from the aesthetic. Totally. No, I love that. That makes complete sense. And I think, you know, aesthetics, I was thinking about my own wedding when I was reading the book because I had a friend who for, or sort of challenged me, one, to have a wedding, but also to reconceive some of the traditions that challenged me to reconceive some of the traditions. And so we integrated the toast into the ceremony. And from the get-go, you know, I thought about my own experience going to many weddings, all of which were lovely in their own ways, but they're very formulaic. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wasn't going to win any of those things. My flowers weren't weren't going to be the most abundant. My food Mm. in the field in Montana was not going to be the most sublime. And that all I really had, that I had the people. And so I also had gone to many weddings where I was like, doesn't matter that I'm here because it doesn't yes. necessarily feel that way. That's so a beautiful question. Yeah, we made a pact that we would take care of the core needs because I think people panic 
when they're like, is there going to be enough food? Is there enough booze? Yep. How long is the line to the bathroom? Yep. Is it a sh- porta potty? Am I going to be too hot or too cold? Absolutely. So we cross those things off. And then we try. We did this incredible program with a, that was a gift from one of my husband's best friends and one of my dear friends who is a an infographic designer. He designed Facebook's timeline, like he's an incredible graphic designer. And he... No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> but so we did this infographic program and involved, included every single person we invited. And so everyone was represented with like mm. weird and fun facts about our lives that involve them. And so at that, I know you talk a lot about that. And I want to talk about that. But the setting people up. Yes. Those small details of connection that start people in conversation. Yes. So how do you do that? Like I'm assuming we're not printing collateral, right? Do you, like in advance of a dinner party, do you say, hey, John, you and Darren share a love for the New York Rangers? Mm-hmm. Like is that what you do? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things you'll see in the Art of gatherings, I try not to be prescriptive. I try to focus on insight and principle. And I love learning all of the examples that people try in the world. And some are translatable and some aren't. Right. So just to step back a little bit, you know, for this book, I went and I interviewed over 100 gatherers in extreme contexts, who many people credited with having created some kind of transformative experience for them in a group. Mm. So like a camp director of a Jewish Arab summer camp, a circus soleil choreographer, a dominatrix, a rabbi, a God optional rabbi, and ask them all what what in your mind creates transformative experiences. And one of the things they all almost to a number had in common was none of them assumed that their gathering had to look a certain way. Mm. They didn't start with form. They started with need. And they started with purpose. What is it that I want to create for people? Or what is a need? Or what is a gap? Or what is a void in this community that I feel passionate about to try to see if we could play with? Mm. And they weren't committed to a preordained vision in their head of what something had to look like. And that is of everything. If you do nothing else, stop starting with an off-the-rack format. Mm-hmm. And the more obvious you're gathering... The more obvious seeming the purpose of your gathering is, the more dangerous it is you're going to fall into a format. So wedding, you know, white dress in an aisle, board meeting, you know, I like to joke, one brown table, 12 white men, mm-hmm. right? Like, and it goes on and, and, and back to school night, like parents like sh- in tiny desks, you know, all uh, sitting <laughs> in rows, listening to a teacher at the front, right? We have these forms in mind and forms come with scripts and scripts tend to not create transformation. Yeah, And so so I'd say all of that to then go to your specific question to say the first thing to creating a meaning, more meaningful gatherings is to pause and ask what your purpose is. And so, you know, I'll skip forward to the specific element of how do you prime your people. So what is the what is the purpose of a wedding? And more, most people assume it's obvious it's to get married or some version of that and pause and say, no, well, why you can get married at City Hall. Why are you bringing a specific set of people in your life to witness you and your partner together committing to each other a certain set of things? Like from where does the social contract come from? Mm-hmm. Like who makes this real? What is the power of the witness? 
is God or the divine making this whole for you, W-H-O-L-E, or is your community? Through, you know, through where are we getting this power? And those are questions we tend to skip over. But as we're more and more diverse and have assumptions and don't share common belief systems, we actually have to start unpacking some of that. So uh, I know a friend who recently went to a wedding and she came back and was like very moved by it. And she said, one of the things the night before the wedding, they were already there as a destination wedding, very small. Every guest got an email from the bride and groom that basically said, like, we are something like, we are so delighted you've traveled all the way to come with us. You have one challenge between now and 3 p.m. Go find Joan and ask her about foraging. Hmm. And every single guest got some version of that. And to me, this was, it was, and it, there wasn't a complicated algorithm. There wasn't Facebook designing an infograph. You know, it was an email. And yeah, it was very thoughtful. But I think a huge part of this is we are, for, those, for that couple, we are gathering our closest tribe who may not all know each other in part because we want our community to witness our vows to each other so that when the going gets tough, which is likely to do, they are part of this special, perhaps even sacred witnessing, and they feel like they have a dog in the fight of our marriage. Mm -hmm. And the deeper the inner stitching is between those people, particularly when they wouldn't otherwise meet in any other moment of their life. So it's not just your college buddies bonding with your college buddies. Like unconscious weddings are sub reunions right. for groups of friends. Conscious weddings if that serves the purpose, either says, yes, let's double down on the sub-reunion or let's cross-pollinate in ways that feel authentic to us where people are willing to do something because it's your wedding. Totally. And I think, too, when you, you know, I know you're breaking the script, but when you also give people, and again, this goes to why I've learned it's bad to be a chill host, <laughs> people want to be told what to do, yes. particularly in the, they want to understand the expectation they want to be told where to go, yes. and they appreciate the direction. And so yes. the more you can, again, like push people together, create opportunities for them to like do play a round of golf with yes. a random subsection of your friends from childhood to college, then it happens. Yes. And I think people misjudge that. Like when I go to a wedding, I'm like, just, I just want to show up and be told exactly where to be and who people are and what I'm supposed to do. People want to know what to do, and they also benefit and want to know context. Right. So meaning is often is created through context, and in part because of this discomfort for wanting to be in the center of attention, quote unquote, or impose our, you know, impose our desires on our guests, we abdicate the role of host. Right. And the first thing I'll say is, you know, one way to create meaning is to help people through what you're actually physically saying at the beginning of a night or the beginning of an event to orient them to what the meaning is for the night. So I'll give an example. A couple of years ago, you know, when I wrote this book, I attended all types of gatherings from my own tradition and not. And I remember I went to a Passover Seder and at the beginning of the night, and there's probably 40 people there, and at the beginning of the night, the host said, I'm so happy to have all of you here. For many of you, it is your 20th year with us. Hmm. And for others of you, it is not only your first Seder with us, it's your first Seder ever. And for me, tonight is remarkable and I'm feeling a sense of loss, but also connectedness because it's the first Seder without my mother. Mm. 
And in 30 seconds, she completely transformed the evening. She helped us know who was there. She helped us know that there were old oldies but goodies, as well as new and curious people. And she helped us understand and connect to her sense of loss and identity and lineage in 30 seconds. So a huge part of this is this is this is a radically democratic process. You don't need the right fish knives. You don't need the right Georgian wine. It's, it's, <laughs> it's simply figuring out what is my purpose and how do I orient people to meaning. And the meaning shouldn't be imposed or taken from someone else's gathering. It should flow from the question of why are we doing this and what is a need right now in my life around which people can help me. Right. No, I love that. And where you can elevate everyone there and not create also vacuums. I think everyone would, can relate to that part of the book when you talk about sort of one of the ill effects of being a chill host is when you aren't like being cornered <laughs> in the lobby or <laughs> yeah, when you're not cruise directing that you create a vacuum for someone to do it in your stead and run that thing the way they want it run and that that's also not what people signed up for. Yeah, we, we think that by being a chill host, by and what I mean by that is like letting people be, that everyone else will let people be. But what happens is one of two things. Either it's extremely diluted, and there's kind of, again, people aren't really sure like what or how they're supposed to connect in a specific way, or someone else does take over. And that could be at a, at a dinner party where two people are, you know, talking more than anyone else. It could be at a conference where uh, a disproportionate number of people who are asking questions are men or are senior, you know, or basically in every group, power dynamics exist. Right. And by saying I'm going to be a chill host, I think the belief is like there aren't, if I'm chill, there aren't going to be power dynamics. But part of any time two or more people get together, you have to figure out how you're going to be together. What right. am I going to reveal of myself? And what am I going to, you know, where am I going to make the decisions? The the organizational design theorist Ed Shine says that all group life, all groups at the beginning of the group have to figure out their relationship to two elements, to authority and to intimacy. Mm. So who's going to be in charge at what time? How are we going to make decisions? If there's two people in conflict or conversation, people are interrupting, like, how are we going to, who's going to be pounding their chest in different ways, right? What's the status, all of that? And then intimacy, what am I going to reveal? How vulnerable am I going to be? What am I going to show? Mm. And all group life is a navigation between those two elements, informally or formally. And as a host, whether, and it can be, in, you can do this in a way that's super cool and not icebreakery or corporate executive leadership e or you can do it and you should do it in a way that feels authentic to you but basically the role of the host is to create a specific purpose communicate it to your guests in implicit or, impl or explicit ways set the context for the night in the same way that the seder experience was and then protect your guests from each other mm -hmm. connect them to each other and temporarily equalize them so how do you police? I loved the example of the movie theater where yeah. you can sort of like flash the sign and they're there to be cops and tell people to shut the fuck up yeah. or eject them. Yeah. That is so brilliant and so totally. needed because there's nothing worse than that feeling of rage totally. in those situations when you're like, oh, this is so annoying and now I'm so irritated. So how do you police in a, in a situation where everyone's not a stranger? So just to unpack that example, because I think, so it's the Alamo Draft House, and basically they, it's a, it's a theater where you can order 
booze and food as well, which is important to the, the enforcing mechanism. Every movie theater around the country says, don't text, don't talk. Most movie theaters basically abdicate the role unless it gets so bad that they send the security in, right? If like someone gets in a fight. But otherwise, someone's talking behind you and you have to like decide, am I going to look back and give them the evil eye? Am I going to be cool and pretend it doesn't bother me? Am I going to say something? Do I escalate it? They put the, the burden of the rules on the, on the guests to enforce. Yeah. Alamo realizes that instead, if, if you see something, often they realize that other customers or patrons will see an infringement of rules first. And so they, you can write down the, you know, the, the texture on, on the same card that you order food and wine with, which is an important detail to the enforcement because no one actually knows that you're ratting them out. Right. You could be ordering an IPA. Then they take that card and they enforce it themselves. So what can we learn from this example? Basically, there are ways to give people social cover. Mm. Alamo is giving guests social cover to report but not have to be seen as visibly enforcing. Right. So similarly, in a conference, I mean, some of this can be designed. It's exhausting to have to go police everything yourself. And I think a, one of the elements of... You know, I I I'm, I don't think everybody has to host a gathering in a way where they're the star of the show and policing everybody and going and enforcing. I actually think the more explicit you are in the invitation, the more explicit you name something. So like a dinner party versus a worn out mom's hootenanny, mm-hmm. right? Same thing, <laughs> but the name and the signal already suggests this is a certain type of night, right? And this is a woman, Jancy Dunn. She's a writer. She writes about this. In the invitation ahead of time, she wrote a story about how she's a worn-out mom. It primes everybody else to say, oh, this is a real need in her life. She sets a rule. If you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. The rule is set up ahead of time in the invitation. It's kind of a playful, right? right? Someone came up to me afterwards when I shared this example, and they're like, what if you really like taking shots, <laughs> right? It's like, okay, well, then if you don't talk about your kids, you have to take a shot, right? It doesn't matter what the rule is, but a huge part of this is When groups realize that the rules you're setting are enforcement mechanisms to a legitimate purpose, they will enforce the rules themselves. Mm -hmm. And you can enforce rules in ways that are deeply playful. So I was, this example is in the book, but I, you know, I, my day job is I'm a group conflict resolution facilitator and I work with companies and organizations and political movements that are having like complicated moments of transition. And I go in and I facilitate conversations with large groups of people that are emotionally, intellectually, and politically complex. So I was working with a company, and they were, have, they were trying to build, rebuild internal trust among, among themselves. And those sessions were beautiful. They were, like, they were going really well. And then the, the coffee break would come, and they'd have 20-minute breaks, which were longer than anything I'd ever seen. And I'd like fought them from 30 minutes down to 20 minutes, but they still wanted 20-minute breaks so they could call clients. And at the end of the at the right time, people would, half the group would come back and half the group were still talking to their clients. And it basically undermined everything that happened in the session before because they'd build all this trust and then half the room would feel disrespected because the other half was showing up late and perpetuating the dynamic, which was the whole reason why I was brought in in the first place. Right. right? So somebody jokingly, so I said to the group, what do you want to do? So the first thing is I didn't, I was an outsider and I knew as a source of authority I didn't want to enforce, make up a rule and enforce it. So you have to have discernment to say, like, where should this rule come from? And is it, a, is it changing behavior in a way that everybody wants, or at least that serves the purpose? So somebody jokingly said, why don't we just make them do push-ups? And it was a joke. And I said, great, let's try it. And so the three people came back. 
dressed very nicely, one of them in heels, and we said, you have to do 10 push-ups. And everybody like looked for a second and said, oh my, are, there, are we really going to enforce this? And I was like, get down and give me 10. And, and they did. And everybody laughed and hooted and, you know, like started clapping and stuff. And they got back up and dusted themselves off. And it, it's playful. It's like, these people also, all of them could do it, right? So it was like a workplace of high performance and they could show that they could each do 10 push-ups. But then the next break, everyone was running through the hallway trying to get back in time so none of them would have to do push-ups. So like, is a rule organic? Where does it come from? And is it, are you willing to limit your behavior in a way that serves a greater purpose? Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They have created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Priya in just a second. My family and I live in a small house in Los Angeles, which we love. It's an architectural home, a historic monument designed by A. Quincy Jones in the 50s. He designed it for post-war families who didn't, as it turns out, have much stuff. So our house is a 1,500-square-foot wonder with essentially no storage space. This is where California Closets comes in. Our bedroom closet was an add-on. It had a wide region that wasn't at all accessible. For a while, I was shoving things behind the sliding doors and just praying that they didn't come unhinged. We try to consume and accumulate as little as we can, but still, we have two kids and we're exploding out of whatever storage we have. And most of it, like our bedroom closet, is deeply dysfunctional. So I was relieved when California Closets came to my house for a makeover. They've been building custom storage spaces for over four decades. Their design consultant came to our house and really got to know the pros and cons of the space. And then she held my hand throughout the process. She counted my things and planned my closet specifically for what I had in need, so I didn't get stuck with unused space. And California Closets has a ton of design options, which they'll also help you navigate. I liked that I could see and understand our closet design in 3D before I decided to pull the trigger on our installation. And I'm so happy with the result. The California Closets team just wrapped up a custom-built-in closet that gives us floor-to-ceiling storage. The new closet takes up less space and has dramatically opened up the room. All of our stuff is much easier to get to and see, and I'll never have to hide things behind the doors again. I even got my jewelry in order, which is one thing that I tend to accumulate with abandon, with a chic jewelry box from their new California Closets Essentials Collection, which has a bunch of other great closet accessories too. Also, the new design works with, rather than against, the defining architectural style of the house. And as an added bonus, 
This all inspired me to go full-on Marie Kondo on our wardrobes, which is maybe my favorite thing to do ever. You can see the finished product that they did for me, yourself, on Goop. And to get started on a project of your own, you can request a free design consultation at californiaclosets.com slash Elise. This June, I'm heading across the pond with GP and some of the Goop crew for our first in Goop Health in London. This is our version of a wellness summit, and it's going down the weekend of June 29th to June 30th. It's a little bit of a pinch me moment. I remember when GP first had the idea to launch a wellness summit, and it has been a privilege to watch the community of women and a few men grow from every in-group health we've hosted in New York, Los Angeles, and last year in Vancouver. I feel super grateful that we now get to bring this experience to London, where we already have a lot of friends and where we look forward to making many more new ones. The summit on that Saturday, June 29th, will be an exploration of what it means to feel and be well, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There will be talks and panels where experts share new information, insights, and perspectives. There will be classes and workshops where extraordinary practitioners will share tools that you can use in your daily life. There will be food and, of course, drinks. Saturday is an all-day affair, and it's totally worth it if you ask me. But if you want to just drop into Ingoop Health for a single class or workshop, check out all the sessions we're offering on Sunday, which is more of a choose-your-own-adventure a la carte setup. That Sunday, we're going to be hosting some cool workouts, energy healing groups, and wellness workshops. And one of my very favorite people, psychotherapist Barry Michaels, is coming with us from LA to lead his incredibly special, life-changing workshop. This is all a long-winded way to say, I hope to see you in London, Head to goop.com slash ingoophealth to buy tickets to Saturday Summit, Sunday's individual sessions, or to reserve a wellness weekend or pass if you want to ball out with us even longer. That's goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Priya Parker. Let's talk a little bit too about who, I know that a lot of the book is about meetings and conferences and larger events, which I want to get to. But going back to the smaller social one, how do you determine? Because I, I, there's a great line about essentially the importance of inviting well and by being restrictive and specific. Like that's, mm-hmm. I guess, honoring the people who are actually spending their time with you. And more than that is honoring the purpose. Right. right? So... If the first step is to choose a specific disputable purpose, so a purpose that not everybody agrees with, right? A purpose is helpful when it starts making helping you make decisions. So, for example, if your purpose is, is let's stick to the social, like to have a spring party. You just move to the neighborhood and you want to have a spring party. You just kind of feel like, you know, hosting something. Then you and your partner or your roommates may say, okay, who should we invite? And then basically you start listing everyone you ever know and you start debating the purpose through the par- proxy war of who should come. Right. Right. And, and so rather than saying that and say, okay, and the purpose can be a thousand different things, but say, okay, what is the biggest need right now that our life would be improved by if we hosted around something? And someone might say, you know, we actually have 16 people in our building and we actually never meet any of them. Our, my old building was like really friendly. Maybe we could just invite everybody in the building and change the norms of like what it means to be neighbors. It's like all of a sudden like, ah, is that the, is that the best version of the night? I have no idea. 
Does it help you make decisions? Could it be meaningful? Could other people realize, to your earlier question, does it even matter if I'm here? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. If half the people show, what does that mean to the building? If 99% of the building shows up, maybe they think something new about themselves. Mm. Right? So how do you begin? Gatherings are powerful because they can change norms for a temporary moment in time. And whether you're a neighbor that's, you know, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a woman who read read this book, had just moved to a new suburb in, uh, outside of Chicago, and they they moved from a block that was very social. And they moved into a block that at least from what she could read wasn't. And she decided to host a, I'll, I'm going to change the name of the street, but um, a... Smith Street. Yeah, a Smith Street party. And she sent her her children out on those little scooters and hung a coffee cup on each uh, of the neighbor's yards and said, doorknobs and said, like, save the date. And on each of those invitations, she saved, she put three facts about each of them to email in about themselves and the number of years that they lived on the block. And they sent them back. And then she sent an invitation to prime them. And there's like a funny cheers gif, you know, inside it. And people showed up and on there's a cake. And on the cake was like a number, let's say 212. And it was the number of collective years everybody who RSVP'd had lived on that block. Right. So she like started to create meaning out of like the specific context of that group. But she Start, and she welcomed them all. She created a threshold. The the her her children had little bubble guns when people walked in to kind of you know celebrate people walking. In. People had no idea what was going on. And again, it wasn't expensive, right? right? It's not it's not about the stuff or showing off. It's it's if we get people competing around creating better meaning, mm. great. No, it's... we'll always compete. But I'd much rather have comp- competition on how little can you pay and how much meaning can you squeeze out of this orange then like, how can we get the most expensive orange? Totally. So now let's talk about free free meetings, even though when you think of the manpower, they're anything but free. <laughs> so let's talk about work meetings, which I think become quite rote. How do you, how do you reinvent? Like, how do you ensure that the meeting is essential? I loved the, the two-foot rule. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was it was a guy, and essentially he was like, oh, we have a two-feet reel. If you're not learning or participating, then you take your two feet and you walk out the oh, door. Oh, yeah, open space technology. <laughs> totally, totally. That, absolutely. The law of two feet. The law of two feet. It's beautiful. <laughs> Owen Harris. He, yeah, I mean, basically, so some of them are just technicalities. I mean, just different ways of thinking. The f- easiest way is to change the way you open and to change the way you close your meeting. And if you change nothing else, that can actually be transformative. So studies show that the first 5% and the last 5% of an audience's attention to a talk, and I think you can, you can um, use this roughly the same metaphor for a gathering, the attention is highest. In part because we're, you know, it's new at the beginning and you're like, what's going on here? And at the end, you're kind of like the anticipation of leaving makes you pay attention more. <laughs> so sad, but so true. <laughs> and then one peak experience. So the first thing is how you open your meeting. Don't start with logistics. I have a few, I have a chapter called Never Start a Funeral with Logistics. Right. Don't start with logistics. Don't end with logistics. Do them second to last. Begin with purpose and end with purpose. And that could simply mean like sharing a story or sharing whatever it is that is going on in your company or in the world to start with that rather than saying like the bathrooms are in the back or today's agenda is blah, 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 blah. The second thing is to spend the first 5 to 10% connecting the people in the room, no matter how often you meet. I mean, you know, if it's weekly. 
And one example I love that is a woman I know who shared this example with me of her team. She has an annual, a weekly staff meeting. It's probably about a dozen people. They meet, I think, Wednesday afternoons, every Wednesday at four. And she's just changed one thing of her meetings after this book. And she started her meetings by asking everybody in 30 seconds to go around and say their rose and their thorn of the week. Mm-hmm. And she li- she didn't limit it to personal or public it sometimes is personal, sometimes is related to work. She let it be. And over time, a couple things happened. One, people started sharing a mix of different things. In some contexts, it felt riskier to share personal stuff. So for, for some of us at work, go like lowering the veil means lowering the water level means like talking about stuff that's happening outside of work. And for others of us, vulnerability means like talking about what's not working with our colleagues, right? Right. So for different ones of us, vulnerability means something different. But the second thing she noticed, and she didn't realize this, was by having everyone start with the norm of a rose and a thorn and everybody weighing rose and thorn equally, people started being willing to talk about their quote-unquote thorns throughout the meeting. And she, she said to me, she created a norm. She didn't realize that she had created a norm of positivity. Hmm. And by just creating this one very specific ritual, one, it helped everyone bond and decide what they wanted to share, different parts of themselves over time, and collectively witness, like, who are these people I'm working with day in, day out? But second, it it actually changed the nature of the conversation of what people felt safe bringing up. Mm, I love that. Yeah, we've done, occasionally at Offsites, we'll do something red, yellow, green, Hmm. where you sort of explain where you are on that spectrum and can share why or why not. Mm-hmm. I like that because it also reminds you of everyone's humanity, mm-hmm. which I think is so important. And sometimes you think someone's – we're all narcissistic to a certain extent, right? So if you're cold to me, I'm going to assume that I've you know th- done something right. that obviously – Right, Your right. feelings right. are all about me. Right. And so it can be a great way to clear the air. One example I love because I think it's it's a brilliant opening question. So so there was a global pharmaceutical company that was gathering and facilitators that I know were trying to figure out what's the best opening question. It was a group of CEOs, some researchers, various different people in kind of the hierarchy, and they were reviewing a maternal mortality study. So mm. And so very technical, but also very, you know, troubling data and trying to see if if the data had gotten better. And the facilitators were thinking, how do we open this in a way where people aren't just grandstanding or not interpreting the data in a right way? Like, how do we increase empathy but equalize the group temporarily? Complicated, right? So they finally landed on this question that I love. And it was, tell us one thing about your mother that we couldn't tell by looking at her. Hmm. So why do I love this question? First, all of a sudden, everyone in the room for 10 minutes is coming. They're temporarily equal because they are all a child that has a relationship to someone older than them, right? So even if they're a certain role in the hierarchy in that context, temporarily, all of a sudden, you're seeing the CEO as a son, right? Or a daughter. But the second thing is it wasn't a gratuitous question because the study was maternal mortality. I'm not saying ask everybody about their mother if you're talking about product design, but I am if you're talking about product design for aging parents, right? Right. So part of it is like the discernment of understanding how do you ask a question that's relevant, but also how do they look at data? And remember, data doesn't – what meets the eye isn't always what's actually going on. Right. So how do you design opening questions that relate to the purpose of the group while changing the group dynamics? I love that. And I love Jancy. She's actually written for Goop before. But oh, so yeah. What are some other, like, just to seed thoughts and ideas for people? Like, what are some other things that stand out in your mind as amazing reasons to gather? 
Well, uh, well, Give us some invitation titles. Oh, interesting. (laughs) One just other idea is like openings that I think totally change the norms that I think are fascinating. So someone recently told me about an app. I can't remember what it's called where they're trying to shift the gender dynamics in an, in an organization. And the app is simply records how many times and how, for how many minutes is a man speaking and how many minutes is a woman speaking. Ooh. Right? And it's like, to me, it was this fascinating use of technology to use a symbol that without uh, judgment or policing, to use your language, helps people just see the data over time. And sometimes just simply seeing the data begins to shift the norms in a way that talking about it, you know, doesn't. Yeah. I think another element is to have everybody connect, but rather than going around saying their name, share one meaningful element that relates to either their role or or the topic at hand. So don't just say go around and say your name and your role. Like give people guidance for one answer that they can answer in 30 seconds. So like when, you know, if, if it's like a mentoring program, Who's somebody in your life that reached out a hand to you that fundamentally changed your trajectory, mm-hmm. right? Tell us about them and in 30 seconds, right? So it immediately, like language and dialogue can immediately change people's openness and, but also like points of interaction and data based on what you ask in the first 5% of it. Didn't, um, and in the book, in terms of the, the male, female, mm-hmm. you were talking about Obama, right? Mm-hmm. And how the he fact that he alternated boy girl boy girl yeah and i mean i think like the next round of a president would say man woman man woman (laughs) (laughs) baby steps but you're right and i've actually seen my husband as a you know as a writer and i've seen him actually employ this device in large groups and you know he's not the president of the free world like people often say well you know it's easy for a president to get up there and shift the norms but i think often we to you can actually do whatever you want at some level if you have the ownership of the stage. So right. President Obama would say, I'm only answering questions with boy, girl, boy, girl order. And if no girl has a question, we'll wait. And he would wait. And sometimes it was awkward. And then finally it would force somebody to raise their hand. So other gatherings that I've seen, I mean, some are really simple. One example recently I got an invitation that I thought was totally brilliant. And it said something like, it wasn't this exact language, but it was like a neighborhood soiree and it was BCC'd, so you didn't see who everyone else was on there. And there was a PDF that was attached to it, so there was like a visual sketch of an invitation. But there was just in the email, in the body of the email, it said something like, like, Dear friend, our two of our closest and oldest friends have just moved to this borough. And they're wonderful, and we want to show them how amazing it is to live here. Nothing more than that, but come and give them a warm welcome. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just a little bit of focus. And all of a sudden, you're giving me a role. And you're helping me show up, not as guest, but in a way, as co-host. Right. It was this brilliant, simple device that helped us like have a there there. And everybody wa- wants to feel proud about their neighborhood and go. And But then also, it's just a pro- it's also a bit of a proxy or social cover to like come and not be shy. Right. Speaking of shyness, that was actually my next question. As an introvert, and I can be quite shy, how do you... And I think you sort of called out a writer who sort of put together this paragraph about how anything like this, this force joining, yeah, is yeah. Like her worst <laughs> nightmare. What about those people? Do you just never invite them to gather? Like, how do you get people over that? Totally. I le- That was a piece from the New York Times. She's one of the most eloquent journalists of her age, I think. And, sh- and I think part of it goes back to the social contract. So I'll say a couple of things. One is... 
a huge proportion of the people I interviewed for this book, who many other people credit them for creating transformative gatherings, self-define as introverted. Mm. Many of them have social anxiety, some of them extreme social anxiety. And so again, to break this myth that the people who host the best gatherings are these kind of charismatic, you know, larger than life characters, sure, some are. But many of the most thoughtful gatherings are actually created by people who are terrified by other people (laughs) and want to go to a gathering that they would feel comfortable in. So they design like structure is one of the best friends of a gathering. And it can be invisible structure, doesn't have to be controlling. You know, experience designers are brilliant at this. So one of the People I interviewed for the book is named Anthony Rocco, and he was a one of the multiple facilitators for an underground secret society that was very controversial at the time called the Latitude Society. It was controversial because it was a secret society that had venture backing, mm. right? So very complicated from an ethical perspective. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating deep dive if you Google that and see. It's a beautiful conversation. Anyway, Anthony had to figure out week after week how to get members to kind of, with others, to bond. And he, he's, he's a brilliant mind at this. And he one of the rules that they invented was with his co-partners, one rule as people walked in, welcome, there's drinks in the back. There's only one rule of the night. You can't serve yourself a drink. Mm. So what does that do? You can serve anyone else a drink, right? Social crutches. Nora Abu State, who I talk a lot about in the book, she takes this trick that she learned from somebody else. Not a trick. She, she takes this insight where whenever she brings together large groups of people and they're broken up into smaller groups for a dinner party or a night or a conference or for her company, at every table she assigns the role of water minister and wine minister. Mm. So again, what does that do? It helps share the responsibility. I mean, the best gatherings over time are ones where basically after a few hours, everybody feels like hosts and Mm -hmm. everybody feels like guests. You can't actually like to walk in, if a stranger were to walk in from the outside to me, the best gatherings, particularly social ones, are ones where you can't tell who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And in part because people own it and start feeling like, oh, I can, you know, I can, I can make this my own within the constraints of an agreed upon purpose which is why the invitation matters so much. So the gathering begins at the moment of discovery, not the moment that people walk in the door. A gathering begins when in the guest's mind, they receive a promise of a future event and they are asked if they would like to join. And the more information you can share that is still culturally appropriate and isn't you know, totally dull, the more likely that their yes is a real yes. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the social anxiety part, I think introverts like meaningful experiences as much, and I would say probably more, than extroverts. And obviously, you know, it's a spectrum and it's, you know, it's not binary and all of that. But I think when people know what they're signing up for and it's a conscious, okay, I'm going to go do this, it's a very different social contract than being sprung something on you at the, you know, at the dinner party when you didn't feel like this was what you signed up for. And so I think a big part of this is like designing with empathy, but also the more people say like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for this in a certain way, the more they're likely to do it. And again, it doesn't have to be putting the spotlight on people. I'll give another example. I was recently, you know, there's a, there's a number of like college reunions and class reunions and back to school nights, a lot of education type of environments. And I've been to now a number of them for friends, for relatives, for my own, you know, as an alumni, as a parent, where there's a, where everybody's gathered for a cocktail hour or a picnic. Everyone comes. It's, you know, it's, as you said, you know, the, the, the rosé is 
you know, spritzy and everything's great. You know, the umbrellas <laughs> and the drinks are lovely. The cheese balls are divine. And the, and two hours go by and everyone kind of looks around, usually around 60 to 90 minutes in and nothing happens. And then like everyone leaves. And to me, it's not that that's not quote unquote okay to just have an evening without a lot of structure. But the host is abdicating their role if they don't pause for at least five minutes and create what I call a moment of focus. Mm. And that moment of focus can simply mean dinging your glass and raising it and saying, we are so excited that you all have come and are entering this community. We hope that if we're doing our job and if you feel part of this community, that your child will be with us for the next 12 years. We can't imagine all of the things that your life has been like. I'm, I'm you know, a four-year-old over the last four years, but I imagine in the room there are people who have joint family. You know, there are people who have been living abroad and are coming back. And then you like flick at like a couple of different experiences to help people see what's in the room. And we, the, the values in our community are X, Y, and Z. And we just want to say, and then give them a little of guidance. In the next half hour, go over. We give you permission. We encourage you. You know, we'll think back in 12 years at our at the high school reunion and be like, remember that moment? I invite you to go and meet three new people and let them know one moment that's been like beautiful and one moment that's been totally chaotic for you over the last four years. Hmm. Thank you for coming. Again, three minutes. Right. Give them a moment of focus, give them some social orientation, give them some context, but have it reflect the values and the thesis of why you're doing this. Totally. No, and I think it creates productivity, which I know that's not the goal, but I think we all want to feel like we're moving forward, that these things have, that they matter. And You keep using the word productive or <laughs> moving forward. And I want to step back and reframe it just slightly, which is... I think people want to feel when they come together that there's a there there. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's efficient or it doesn't mean that it's productive in the sense of like it is creating work. No. I, I recently was speaking with a woman who runs a number of uh, Quaker meetings and she described to me, and I'm going to butcher it a bit, but she described to me how Quakers describe their meetings. And, and they say it like this. They say... Meeting for worship to address the business of the day. And to me, that sentence is so powerful because there's two parts of it. There's meeting for worship, whatever you think that is, the source of knowledge, the source of experience, the source of divine. But then it's like, there's brass tacks here. There's nuts and bolts here, right? There's So there's community and there's the like boots on the ground, like what are we actually doing, right? There's, right. And so I think going back to this element of like, you know, productivity or, or just kind of there's the witnessing, and then there's pushing something forward together. Right. And the pushing something forward together could be a question in the world. So even at panels or conferences, to to me, people go through the form of a panel. You put three people on the top of, you know, on this table, there's a facilitator, and it's usually a way for them to promote whatever it is that they're doing. And versus or conferences that organize all of the topics based on the most controversial questions in the field that no one really has an answer to. I would call that in your language like productive, right? There's like, we're, we're, there's a there there. We're like, we're, we're coming together to figure out the things that we actually don't know the answers to, but maybe through a group we could start to have some insight into. And I think a huge part of gatherings that are transformative have an, a certain amount of heat. And heat can be conflict, but heat can be taboo. Heat can just simply be relevance. Why are we coming together? What do we care about? And how do we focus the light on that? Mm -hmm. I love that. 
I loved the, I want to steal this idea, although having children makes it harder. (laughs) But the here I am. Yes, I'm here days. I am here. Yes. So I can butcher everything in your book and get it back. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> what is it? I am here? I am here days. Okay. So can you sort of explain? I am here days are accidental invention that my husband and I kind of stumbled upon when we first moved to New York. We had heard that people move here and, and end up having kind of a relationship to their neighborhood and the place they work. And you rarely ever go to all of the other like fascinating neighborhoods, boroughs, all of this stuff. So we wanted to shift the norm for ourselves early on to make sure that we'd get out to other places. So we said, well, why don't we go to a neighborhood on foot and just explore it for a day? And a friend of ours was like, can I join? And so from the very beginning, it became a gathering instead of a couple. I define gatherings that anytime three or more people come together for a purpose. And And the rules over time became this, 12 hours, so 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. usually. If you're gonna come you have to turn your phones off. No micro-coordinating with other people. People can't pop in and out. And you have to commit to being present and up, up for whatever the host of the day has planned for us. And um, one conversation at meals. And over time, we did this in like, I think, 21 different neighborhoods. Every sat- one, one, maybe one Saturday or Sunday, usually Saturday a month. And we'd go to Harlem and Red Hook and the Bronx. And sometimes I would host it and just literally figure things out through, you know, looking at blogs online. And sometimes locals would host it and be delighted to, you know, come together. But basically, we started to realize that the that a group of people spending time together for 12 hours is fundamentally different than spending four hours together three times. Mm-hmm. And because a group kind of warms up together, then there's this rise. And if you keep staying together, there's actually a fall. So at 2 p.m., we'd get really like tired and cranky and people would not be on their best behaviors. And all of a sudden, you'd be real. And then you'd get a second wind at around 5 p.m. and everyone would get excited again and you'd you know go out for you know dinner or a picnic or whatever it was. And the intimacy and the friendships, but also located in place and space. Like, it's not surprising that for us, the people who were attracted tended to be transplants also. People, though some New Yorkers, native New Yorkers were like, I've never actually been to such and such. And the second thing was, when we were in these neighborhoods, people in the neighborhoods would respond to us differently because it's actually very rare to see a group of people walking around not looking at their phones. So we'd be invited into apartments, we'd be invited in for tea, we'd be invited in for a drink, we'd be invited, you know, and for ancho- you know, anchovies and chips, like all sorts of things. And we, after the end of the day, it felt like we were kind of on vacation. Our weekends would feel long, we'd feel both tired but rested, and our friendships were kind of transformed and our sense of place was transformed and our knowledge of New York and our sense of like ownership over it. And you could do this in, you know, many different cities or places was sped up. And so it was a experiment of intentional structure that was very simple, right? I, I, my, we wrote about it, my husband wrote about it at some point years ago and somebody online said, wow, like New Yorkers discover walking on foot. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's really simple. But often a huge part of gatherings are actually like shedding a lot of our distractions and being willing to enforce the time commitment. And the stricter our rules were, the more people were clamoring in to join these days. Yeah, I would imagine. It sounds like a boat I'd want to get on. (laughs) 
you know, when I, the thing that I think is so beautiful and powerful about gatherings is that they are sources of cultural change. And so every time one person takes, takes a risk to gather differently and to take the courage and be like, hey, guys, you know, I heard about this book. Let's try something different. Like, blame me for the social cover. We start actually changing the norms of where else we can actually do this. And so, you know, for your listeners, if you, like, go out and try a specific gathering in a bold way. It can be small. It can be simple. And tell me about it. Because I, the more examples that we have, the more culturally and collectively we can start shifting the focus to not have a meaning focus on things, but having a meaning focus on people and learn from each other's creativity. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Priya. You can order her book, The Art of Gathering, out now. In the meantime, you can find out more about her at priyaparker.com. That's P-R-I-Y-A. Now over to GP for today's AMA. What have I learned as a step parent? Wow, this is this is a good one. It's been a really, really interesting process. You know, what strikes me so much about being a step parent is that these paradigms that have existed for centuries around that specific relationship are so deeply ingrained in our psyches for a reason. And also because they're so deeply ingrained, they're really hard to change. And the narrative around stepmothers specifically, if you think about it, there's almost no narrative in a movie or a cartoon or in any kind of expressed art form where the stepmother is a healer or an angel or a positive influence or an incredible bonus in the children's lives. So I think all step parents, especially stepmothers, step into this situation and it's, you know, very difficult because, you know, a child's bond with their mother is unlike anything else. And I think the presence of a stepmother is innately threatening to a lot of children. So for me, it's taught me a lot about adulthood because the role of an adult is to understand always that a child is a child and whatever they are bringing to the situation, no matter how complicated or complex it might be, the role of the adult is to stay in an adult space and to not be triggered by what's happening, to really see through it, to see it for what it is, which is an expression of, you know, whatever it might be for that child at that time. Fear, jealousy, regret, a feeling, you know, that they're betraying somebody else if they befriend you, etc. And, you know, for me, in my situation, I, I try not to overstep and I try to always hold a place of uh, openness and loving and forgiveness. And, you know, I think it's, it's a very, very interesting relationship to have. I think it's taught me a lot about myself. I really love my stepkids. It hasn't been easy throughout the years but I do know wholly that they are in my life for a reason and I'm in their life for a reason. And so I think it's always the step parent's responsibility 
to be the one to rise to the occasion and to try to lift everybody up. And also, you know, it's cool to be a person in a child's life that really is just there for their highest good and wanting them to be their best selves and where it's not muddied by family dynamics and you're, you're not biologically related and you're this observer. And so I think it's actually a really beautiful role. It's just not that easy all the time. Thank you, JP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can always find more on goop.com slash the podcast.